The Plumley Pod, episode 22. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's guest is David Scott of the UK Column. David will not need much of an introduction to you fine people. You already know all about the UK Column, I'm sure. And if you don't, if you are like the one person that is listening to this that has not come across the UK Column, please get yourself over to ukcolumn.org. That's the ukcolumn.org to check out their amazing, amazing resources, in particular, the news. It's live Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays at one o'clock. And if you can't make it, you can catch up. It's like how news used to be when journalists actually did their job properly. David, welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm going to get out of your way because nobody has come today to listen to me. They have absolutely come to listen to what you have to say. First of all, I'd like to ask you about what your education was like and what things have served you well into your future right now as a presenter on the UK column? Mm, Good question. My education was extremely conventional. Primary school, which I would say was, broadly speaking, quite good. By the end of that, I was certainly having some success in educational and academic terms. State secondary school, much less good. The maths and physics were well taught. English was quite well taught. Most of the rest... I don't think I got particularly very much out of. And then off to university to do a technical education. Now, this was in the days before the woke brigade and some of the strange ideas which are well-established in universities now had quite reached engineering. There were these ideas circulating, but they were very much confined to arts and social sciences and engineering and science and the the, the quote-unquote hard subjects. These were largely free from that. And I came out with a degree in engineering, which I then went on to get professional qualifications and a career as an engineer. And it was only some considerable time later that I started to look at education, my own and others, with a much more critical eye. If you'd asked me then, I would have said, well, yeah, it wasn't ideal. It took far too long for what I actually gained, but by and large, the education was okay. Um, Quite good in places, in fact, and that's sort of how I would have described it then. So things roll on, and I uh, set up a company, and I start to employ people. So I start to employ the products of our education system, and I start to notice some very alarming things. So I've got people who have got master's degree in engineering, and they can't write. I mean, they can't structure a paragraph. They can't order an idea. The reason they can't write is they can't order their own ideas. They have ideas, but the overriding impression I get is one of confusion and a mess and people struggling to find coherence in a mass of kind of half-formed ideas. That's what I'm seeing. And it wasn't just once or twice. It was quite consistent. And it wasn't unfixable, because it wasn't the human beings. The human beings were actually okay, because in the office, these problems could be resolved. But I started to question why 
what I was getting after, I mean, you're talking a master's degree in Scotland's five years, plus primary school, plus secondary. So you're 17 or 18 years of full-time education. And I'm, I was looking at what was coming out, and I think this is really not good enough. We really have a problem. Plus attitude issues. I mean, there was a sense of entitlement, a number of other things that had to be overcome. Arrogance, which actually worked against learning and things like this. So there was lots of problems. I started to dig into why, and that's when things got a lot more interesting. Unbelievable to hear you talk about how weak people with a master's degree are organizing their thoughts. You start to learn that at GCSE at sort of 14, 15, 16, when you're writing essays in history, in English literature, in English language, if you haven't taken history, the compulsory components. How can you possibly get to a stage where you've had 17 or 18 years of full-time education and not be able to order your thoughts? And these are the people who are have been successful at education. Can you imagine, I'm sure you can, what the people who have been unsuccessful in their educational career are like? Can you tell us some more? I had no idea that you had been employing uh, such interesting, well, ha- having noticed such interesting things in the regular people that you're employing. Well, yeah, so I started to dig into this. And you are right, these are the success stories. And we'd already gone through a selection program. So these were the best that we could find. So this was, quote, the best of the best. And it really wasn't good. So I started to dig into why and I started to read about education. So I actually spent a very interesting, or probably two, two and a half years, reading into how the education system ended up where it is. And it's a fascinating story. Now, Charlotte Isabey was one of the people who took me a, a large part of the way, and the way she started off was noticing that schools in America, which didn't have a problem with teenage pregnancies, would then have programs rolled out to prevent teenage pregnancies. And after the program, there would be teenage pregnancies. So the sex edge program was doing the very opposite of what it was being advertised to the parents as being for. So that's what drew her in. And then I discovered John Taylor Gattle, who was just spectacular writing and wonderful stories. And for those few who might not know, he was New York State Teacher of the Year, he was New York City Teacher of the Year, and he resigned in the op-ed page of the Washington Post or something because what he was doing to have enormous academic success in his children in a deprived school in a kind of ghetto area of New York, what he was doing was so subversive It didn't work once he got famous and they were watching him because people were turning up when there was meant to be 32 people in the class and there was like four kids and they were saying, where are the rest? And he was running out of excuses. So he was fighting against the system from within and was wonderfully successful. And that alone's a clue, but you just have to listen to him or read his work to realize he is on to something. And what I learned from him started me questioning my own education, started me questioning what schooling is really teaching. Because he said, well, there's there's an unofficial curriculum in a class, in a school. There's things that they're teaching you that they don't know that you're being taught. For example, they teach you to go on to a subject and engage with it, but when the bell rings to stop and move on to something else. So you're not actually allowed to really commit to anything. It's only partial, it's only limited, it's only when instructed and insofar as it's instructed. So that you would never get much love for a subject, you would never get much passion and excitement because with the bell ring, we have to move on to something else. 
And all of this kind of structure, he was arguing that it's there to provide people who are able to administer the system well enough, people who are able to do the jobs that need to be done, including professional jobs where there's a certain amount of independent thought required, but it's to teach them to think in a certain way. So you don't get people who are going to rock the boat. You don't get people who are going to push against the system. You don't get people who are going to think for themselves and form an independent view. They're going to be obedient, and it's all about the training for obedience. And what you're getting from this is something which is profoundly deadening to the human experience. You know, it flattens people. It makes them less interesting. It makes them less complete. And that should surely be the very opposite of what education is. So, yes, through John Taylor Gatto and other books, there's a little book called The Leipzig Connection, which is very interesting, and how all of these ideas came from late 19th century Germany with their nationalistic and statist ideas being expressed through the school system to provide for military and for manufacturing and all of these ideas that were absorbed into Western education because, well, the German PhD system is so wonderful, we all must follow it and we're all dead. And just to close this a little bit off, when I've interviewed, I never actually employed any PhDs, maybe one didn't go well. When I was interviewing PhDs for the company and finding that they have brought very little that we could actually use. They were very underskilled. But what came across there was the arrogance that they had was even greater. So they'd been told over and over and over again, you're a very special person because you've got this PhD. That means something wonderful. And I looked at them and I, I could only see someone who took three years to think of anything. And the nature of the work that we do requires a speed of thought as well that I knew that these people weren't well-placed to achieve. So I actually got to see a PhD from my particular company's requirements as actively harmful. So if that's harmful, what else is harmful? Started to ask these questions, and it's a fascinating story. It's interesting you mentioned the Leipzig connection because Germany to this day is still a country where home education is forbidden. It is absolutely forbidden. You may educate your child at home in addition to the state education, but thou shalt drop their child off at school for a state education in Germany. To the, I couldn't believe it. I had to check that about 12 months ago when I was writing a piece for my Substack. I, I'd heard it sort of nominally, but I thought, well, it mustn't be true. It must be an exaggeration. Silly me, silly me. No, to this day, Every single child in Germany must go through the German sausage-making machine. And I love that you, you touched on John Taylor Gatto just there. I've got his book, Dumbing Us Down, right here. That's Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gatto. If you haven't read it, parents, please do. It is wonderful. It's an easy read, and it cuts straight to the point, no messing about. Here's a beautiful little extract which reads... The institution of school he's talking about here, the institution is psychopathic. It has no conscience. It rings a bell and the young man in the middle of writing a poem must close his notebook and move to a different cell where he must memorise that humans and monkeys derive from a common ancestor. Is that not a perfect way to describe our school system in the UK, David? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And it also gets into the dehumanising effects, but also the number of things that are taught that just ain't so. And the fact that you're not allowed to find out in the school, all the reasons why they just ain't so. You're not allowed to find, have the 
contrary arguments. You're not allowed to form your own view. Because that one there, the whole evolution debate, that's absolutely core to your worldview. So that's going to affect how you view everything and everybody for the rest of your life. And the school is telling you there's only one answer that is universally accepted to be the truth, right? And that's a lie. That's just a lie. And the more you dig into that lie, the more it comes apart. And the more it's coming apart due to scientific research in the last 20 years, the whole idea of being able to find out information about the human genome has been devastating to that case. But the school children aren't allowed to know. They must learn this lie and believe it as an item of faith. And anyone who challenges it, well, has no place in the schooling system. But my brother's much older than I am. So he was going through secondary schooling in the 60s. And at those points, he wrote an essay about why he didn't believe in evolution. It was very badly marked and it was greeted with great hostility by the teachers. But he did get to write it, right? You wouldn't get to write that now. It just wouldn't come up. So things are bad and getting worse. Now, just to kind of close off my personal story on this, after discovering all of this about education and realizing that what really counted was not what we were being told, and certain core skills, such as writing ability, I'd learned entirely outside the schooling system. I went to a course on, on writing at run by a, an academic at Strathclyde University that put me on the right course. And from there, I was able to essentially learn under my own steam. So writing ability, which I think is absolutely essential because it goes to how you order your thoughts, is something that I learned very largely outside of the schooling system. But there came a point where I was looking at a technical problem. And I won't go into the technicalities of what it was, but it was bugging me because it was kind of an obvious gap in the system of thought that I had learned at university. So I went and looked for the answer in all the textbooks and I couldn't find it. And only after spending an embarrassing amount of time looking for someone else to have done my thinking for me did I sit down and use the knowledge I had and think the problem through from first principles. And when I did this, I found I had both the answer and a greater understanding of the subject wholly due to my own effort in thinking. And the penny slowly dropped that I should be doing this every day. And I'd kind of got the view that education was something you consume, other people provide and you consume, other people tell you and you learn and memorize and understand and maybe can apply, but you don't think it through to further that knowledge base. And I realized then that that was one of the things I'd picked up from my, quote, successful, end quote, education. And then a little while later, something else came up and it was another technical problem. And not only did I resolve the issue again using first principles understanding to develop the answer, but from that discovered several quite serious defects in the engineering science that had been presented to me at university and is still in the textbooks. And that was all derived from first principles thinking. So I learned that, hey, this thing called thinking, it's fun and it's you get a lot out of it. And when you learn something that way, you learn it in a much deeper level than you do simply with this 
memorize and repeat stuff. And it gave me an inkling as to what I'd been missing through the education system. We had a rebel teacher at a university. I can't remember, for the life of me remember her name, which is a disgrace. But she was, I thought she was crazy. She was teaching geometry to graduates, actually. We were already graduates. We were doing a further study at university in mathematics in order to become mathematics teachers at secondary school and at sixth form level. That's uh, A-levels if you're uh, UK-based. And we used to sit there. There's a little table of the people who just really didn't understand geometry at this level. And this lady, this wonderful lecturer, she really was. We didn't appreciate her at the time. But she was trying to get us to think, to really think. So she would draw something on the board, like a triangle or something and some dots. And she would say, can you see the circle? And we would sit there laughing because we were so ignorant. We had no idea what she was talking about. We were completely unable. There were some students in that classroom that were able to see the circle. We used to joke that they were the seers. And we just could not understand what on earth she was talking about. And then one day we were set these problems. And I went home thinking, I've got no chance of solving these. I I haven't understood any of these classes this term. I'm stuffed. But when I sat there for long enough just looking at one of the problems, I actually did solve it myself. And it was the first without any textbooks, any videos, and nothing, just by looking at it and thinking, using the knowledge that I did have of number, of shape, of simple facts based around circles, triangles, whatever, and some coordinate geometry. And I figured it out. And I sent it, I screenshot it and sent it to my colleagues on the table of people who didn't understand. And they were like, oh, you've become a seer. We were kind of, obviously, we were sending ourselves up. But that was the day that I became a seer. That was the day. It probably was the first time in my entire life, certainly my mathematics life, that I'd actually solved something truly for myself without being shown any method, without being shown anything. Now, having hated geometry at university because I couldn't understand most of those lessons, I do remember that incident. And then, lo and behold, when I became a mathematics teacher for GCSE and A-level in the classroom in, in the UK, in England, I was the best geometry teacher ever. Geometry became my favorite subject because I suddenly had this ability at much lower levels of geometry like we teach at GCSE and A-level compared with what we've been doing at university purely from having been stretched and and actually made to think for the first time for myself. And how extraordinary that I'd come through all of those years of education, primary school, secondary school, sixth form, a first degree, and then onto a postgraduate certificate And I can still remember it as the first time I actually figured something out fully and wholly for myself. What does that say about education in our country? One of the uniquely Scottish aspects of this is Scottish education used to be quite distinctly different from the English one. And there's a pair of books written by a philosopher called George Elder Davy. It's called Democratic Intellect. And then the second one's called The Crisis of the Democratic Intellect. And what the first book shows is you've got this very successful Scottish education system that's based on first principles. So you equip the student with the first principles so that they can think for themselves. And the English system and the English-based and influenced parliament in London viewed this with great suspicion and viewed the Scottish system as failing, despite all the success of the people who went through it, and viewed it as a problem. And there was then a hundred years of attacks and numerous royal commissions into the problem of Scottish education. And eventually, after a hundred years of resistance, it eventually failed, or fell, to become more like the English system. And the last remnants of it actually probably kept going to about 1965, when the last remnants were swept away. So reading about that history is very interesting. If your listeners are wondering what sort of areas they might 
director children to look at, if you look at how that used to be taught, what used to be taught, because they taught rhetoric, they taught moral philosophy, they taught logic, all those core elements. They taught physics, natural philosophy. They taught well, Latin was a language and the principles of a language, specifically Latin, were taught. So the nature of that general education, and this was given to pupils who were in the original Scottish system probably about 14 onwards, because they went to university quite young in those days. So you'd come out with 18 with this liberal degree and a broad understanding of the limits of knowledge and why you know what you know and things like this that you're not meant to question now. And uh, it was all paid for, not by the state. So the lecturers would go down and they would actually recruit their students for the term and they'd get paid in cash and they'd come back with their pockets bulging with cash. And that was them for the term. So it was, there was a very direct link between the success and interest and relevance of the lecturer and his financial living. So there was a huge incentive for them to make it relevant. And yet they taught things we're now told are not relevant. You know, moral philosophy, how to think, what's the theory of knowledge, all of this sort of stuff was taught. And when they looked into things like geometry, algebra and what have you, that was taught from a very first principles understanding role. So just the sort of thing you're talking about there is how that was actually approached. And so you had a university like Cambridge who regarded itself as elite in mathematics. They looked down in the Scottish system because it wouldn't be getting as far along in the mathematical system. And so they're behind. But actually what the students were able to do with the mathematics they had was far greater because they understood them in a far deeper way. So in addition to the Leipzig Connection and Charlotte Isabay and John Taylor Gatto, George Elder Davy, surprisingly readable, a pair of books about wars within the education system largely fought over chairs of moral philosophy and written by a philosopher, you think, it's going to be dry. But actually, it's 200 years of history and it's fascinating. It's great to hear you talk about first principles because that is the beginning Everyone asks, where do I begin? If I'm educating my son or daughter at home, where do I start? Well, guess what? It's called first principles for a reason, right? And this stuff is extremely difficult or can be extremely difficult to find if you're starting out on your own. And it's deliberate. It's very difficult because they don't want you to find out this stuff because this is how you truly educate young people. This is you giving them the tools so that they can educate themselves. And that's really what education is supposed to be about. It's a bit like how you wean a child wean a small baby from the mother. Well, we're supposed to do that the same way in education. We give them lots of attention and help and support in the, in the beginning. And there's supposed to be a gradual distancing as the learner becomes more and more proficient at teaching themselves and learning for themselves and figuring things out for themselves. And this seems to me, well, I know for a fact from having taught in the classroom that this is now not happening. Things are being spoon-fed. I have, sadly, this is from Scotland. I teach a wonderful young lady from north of the border this year. I usually have Scottish students for mathematics, although I try not to tutor anymore because I'm extremely busy, but I can't help it. I'm a, I love it, so I do. And bless her, she's been given a multiplication table, the, the times tables, the answers, if you like, to help with certain sections of mathematics lessons. So that's whole groups of children that are about 13 years old being given a multiplication grid to help them in the lesson. Now, there's nothing wrong with these children. Sure, they've, some of them have been labelled with this, or with that. But having personally taught some of these people, 
I can absolutely say there is no reason why these children should not already know their multiplication tables up to 12 times 12. And the fact that they do not is actually what's causing all of the harm in their mathematics education. Now, I don't want to get too technical because not everybody loves maths. I get it. But these are the foundational principles of everything. How am I supposed to teach you percentages, the relationship between percentages and decimals and ratios and fractions, if you don't instantly, aren't instantly able to recall your multiplication tables? To me, it's beyond parody. It's, it's vaudeville that, you know, we're giving teenagers multiplication grids. We're letting these young people down. It's, it's a disgrace. I, I can hardly speak because it makes me so angry. When the answers are so obvious, these children must learn these tables. I mean, we used to know them before we came out of primary school. It was very rare for a 10-year-old not to know all of their tables up to 12 times 12, and certainly an 11-year-old. But these days, I find when I'm teaching year seven, so those are the, if you're not from England, those are the children who are 11 years old. That's when we go to high school. That's when we go to secondary education in England. These children are coming to me and they are not secure in add, subtract, multiply and divide with pen and paper. And they do not know their multiplication tables up to 12 times 12 properly and in some cases at all. And therefore, my job as a secondary school teacher is completely hampered. So I used to have to break the law. I used to have to tear up the national curriculum and for the first three months of a new year seven class run boot camp, which was effectively what primary school should have taught these children. For me, I don't know what you think about this, David, but for me, I, I cannot believe for a single second that that is accidental. No, I don't think it's accidental. No. And this is what my daughter's a teacher and she was at university getting taught the theory of education. At the same time, I was reading John Taylor Gatto. This caused a certain amount of friction. Because amongst other things, one of my particular kind of bogeymen was an American educationalist called John Dewey, who was bringing in the German ideas into America and rolling them out. So at her graduation, he was praised by the head of the school in her initial address my daughter, poor wee soul, was actually worried that I would stand up and object. <laughs> and object to this on the basis that Dewey was evil. But it shows you that what was being taught in the schools of education, where they're teaching the teachers, was very different from what I was learning and what's out there from people like John Taylor Gatto. And what you're dealing with is deeply, from the state's point of view, deeply subversive. From our point of view, fascinating and interesting and enlightening and, and opens up huge worlds of thought and understanding. I'll give you one negative and one positive to show you where we are. When the pushback against the erosion of what was unique in Scottish education happened in the late 50s, early 60s, there was a new university founded at Stirling. And to try and restore some of what would, had been lost there was an attempt to establish a course in epistemology, the study of knowledge. So it was to make sure that everyone in the university, and everyone, every first year had to go through this course, everyone in the university would be able to answer the question, how do I know what I know? They would have that conceptual framework to assess their own knowledge. Now, that eventually failed for two reasons. One, they couldn't get the student body to see it as important to attend and engage with this course. And secondly, they couldn't actually get people who could teach it because the knowledge, the ability, and the interest in the very fundamentals underpinning the theory of knowledge and how 
we think and how we educate and how we know what we know, that had been so eroded over the previous 150 years that they could no longer get someone in Scotland capable of teaching that course effectively. Now, I give you on the, the opposite side of that a little experience I had courtesy of Alex Thompson, also of the UK column. Alex is a Christian chap and he's in touch with various Christian groups and discussion groups and thinkers, including some in America. So he said that some of his friends from America were coming over and they were going to be spending a few days in Scotland. I said, oh, that's nice. I'll show them round, thinking that he was bringing, you know, one or two people. So when I found out how many there were, and there was about 12 of them, and I had to hire the biggest minibus I was legally able to drive to take them round in, I then went, took a day and went round the sites in Scotland. So we started off, because as a Christian tour, they wanted to see Christian sites. So we started off looking at an 8th century Pictish cross in Serse Church in Dunning, and then we ended up, the last one, which was partly tongue-in-cheek, there's a place called Fortingall, which has got a yew tree, which is of great age, and is allegedly the birthplace of Pontius Pilate. And this tree is meant to be as old as that. It's about 2,000 years old. Also, it's beautiful, and the hotel's lovely, and the food's great. So we finished up there for a meal. So we started a sort of tour through, Christian tour through Persia. Now, that whole day lasted probably about 14 hours. So there was me driving the bus, and there was 14 folk on the bus, 12 of them were this American crew, all of whom had been home educated. I have never had an experience like it. I had 12 hours of rapid-fire, insightful questioning about everything. They wanted to know everything, right? I was questioned on everything from geology as we drove through it, history, theology, music. I mean, the questioning was incessant and thoughtful and hugely varied. And I had never talked to people like this in my life. And there was a willingness to think and discuss and question and examine that was just different, that I'd not come across before. And even when I was putting things to them to, you know, be a bit controversial in the area of theology, I'm basically first century Christian, right? So that's what I believe is as close as I can get to what was in the church 1900 years ago, which makes me a bit different. So I'm pushing back at some of the things they believe in asking them questions. Why doesn't the church now do such and such? Right? And the reaction was one of interest and discussion and engagement. And back would come reason and thought, and it wasn't hostile. I'm giving them things that if I did that in a normal context of church-going people in the UK who have been through state education, I would have got hostility because it would be too challenging. And there wasn't any hostility. So this was all very interesting and very encouraging for people who are looking to home educate. I'd have to say my experience of the results of this has been very positive. And the richness of topics that can be accessed and the richness of the kind of first principles understanding that can be built is a joy. And the only 
challenge is most people doing this, the parents, the children ultimately educating themselves, but the parents who are trying to direct and guide this will find themselves somewhat ill-equipped because they've been through the state system themselves. And as long as you have the view that, okay, that's a problem, but, you know, I'm going to learn too, and you have the willingness to learn and spend some time reading, and Gato's a good place to start, but there's many places you can go from there, you will overcome that. But you have to be prepared to unlearn, I think as a parent, unlearn quite a lot of things too, because this system has affected us all. Yeah, I completely agree with that. This is a wonderful opportunity. If you're a parent, you're about to get a real education. If you decide to home educate your children, you yourself are going to go on the most fascinating journey of your life. It will be like education like you have never experienced before because it will be authentic. It will be real education. And if you can accept that the knowledge you have isn't real, and a lot of it is actually categorically untrue, as long as you can deal with that and say, okay, I'm going to start again, and I'm going to learn in a truthful manner, what you do have, you then hold because it, you know you've learned it for real. You know that you solved that problem by yourself. You know that you have done this experiment and found out that, hey, my Pythagoras works. You can do these things in the real world. And it is, it's a, people, I think, are very frightened of having extra, I think they feel like it's going to be homework. I think parents feel like home educating their children is going to be like, oh God, it's not more homework, is it? No, it's not like that at all. It's not a chore. It is a joy because you will be learning yourself. And once you start learning, you won't want to stop. You will be insatiably curious. I just want to come back on, I love that little story about your brother, that little anecdote where he um, he decided to write a critique of a theory that must not be questioned in education. Well done to him. And what came out of that was hostility. You know, he's in trouble for wrong think or wrong writing, wrong essaying or something. Being told that your, you know, your essay is invalid because it questions a theory that is currently accepted by the establishment, actually forced down your throat by the establishment. This is a really good example of what's already taken place in all of our institutions, but especially in the academic ones. I can remember when I took my first teaching post, I was a first-year teacher, brand-new teacher, mathematics teacher in a secondary school. And I was in the staff room one day doing something. And the subject of the inclusion essay came up. Now, the inclusion essay is as insidious as it sounds. It's something that you are forced to write in your PGCE year. That's your postgraduate certificate of secondary education. You must take this qualification if you want to be a real teacher, in my humble opinion. That's the state's version of this is a real teacher, right? So almost all teachers go through this, particularly state school ones, go through this process. Now, the inclusion essay requires you to write about your experiences of inclusion in the classroom. And what they're talking about, they're talking about the kind of inclusion where people who have special educational needs are included in mainstream lessons. Now, in mathematics, this is actually a massive problem because even within the top set, we always segregate for mathematics, usually from year seven, because even if you have 250 children in a school year, which often you do at secondary schools in the UK, you can't give them all the same maths education because they all arrive in very, very different places and they all work at different levels and at different speeds. Anyone who's taught top set will see even a serious range of ability within the 
top 30 kids in a school. So when you teach the lower sets, in particular the very bottom set, as we're required to as part of our teacher training, you will see children in there who are in the wrong set. They actually have a bit of ability, but are being distracted by the poor behavior, actually, of some of the students in the bottom class. They're mixed in with students who have serious educational issues. They need specialist support, which mainstream school lies and pretends it can support, it cannot. So as a new teacher, when you first go in thinking, oh, great, yes, we're going to include everybody. We're going to make sure everyone has a great maths lesson. You then go into this bottom set and it's like a zoo. It's completely out of control. It's carnage. Even in a relatively well-disciplined and well-behaved school, the bottom set is a madhouse. It doesn't work because you have far too many different and complex needs in the same room. And you're also trying to teach some of the mainstream children who actually there's nothing wrong with them. They just take quite a bit longer to get from A to B. Anyone who's experienced it knows it doesn't work. So then when you write this inclusion essay, you're compelled to lie. Because if you don't lie, you fail the essay. Now, I wouldn't lie. I just, I'm sorry. I'm just, I am not going to say something. You cannot force me to say something that isn't true. I'm just not going to do it. I might say something that isn't true by mistake and through my own ignorance, but I'm not going to lie. So I wrote the truth in my inclusion essay. And whilst I was in the staff room at this new school, three other colleagues that I'd only just met also turned around and said, oh my God, I almost failed that essay too. We were all given one mark above a fail, the four of us. I was an outstanding classroom teacher. I was graded as outstanding even before I began my career. I've never had anything other than outstanding in a formal observation because I am quite a vibrant and hardworking teacher and children find me interesting to listen to, believe it or not. And I couldn't believe it because these people, one of them was from Australia. She'd actually done her inclusion essay, I think, in Australia. One was Canadian. She'd done her inclusion essay at a university in Canada. And the other two of us, myself and this other mathematics teacher, We'd done ours in in the UK, but she'd done hers down south and I'd done mine up north. Sorry, David, when I say up north, I'm talking like Manchester, not the real north. I apologise. So that's when I started to majorly join the dots about education. How is it these four of us successful teachers, I was a supremely successful mathematics teacher, how is it that we all nearly failed? We were one mark off a fail just on that one essay. On everything else, we pass with merit or the top level that you can pass with on every single other aspect of teacher training except this inclusion essay. And why? Because we refused to lie. We said, look, this doesn't work. We need to try something different. And we got, you know, a bit of a hammering for it. My brother back in the 60s on his essay saying why he doesn't believe in the theory of evolution got handed back to him with an angry red pen across the front of it saying, this is not your work. This is the work of your parents, which wasn't true. My own experience of this Second year of secondary school, modern studies, which is a kind of hodgepodge of what the Americans might call it civics, but it's a weird subject taking into account current events and stuff. And we had to write something about the welfare state. And I wrote something hostile to the welfare state and illustrated it with experiences from my youth. Because my parents had a little shop and next to the shop was a betting shop and next to that was a pub. So we had a certain amount of multiple social deprivation kind of passing the door every day. And there was one one little lady whose husband used to drink all the money. And she would come down on a Monday and borrow some money from my father to pay for the messages for the week. And when he got paid on the Friday, she'd pay my father back. And she was back on the Monday again because he'd drunk all the money again. And that, that wee bit of money went back and forward between them for years. So I wrote about things like this. And I got my only ever zero 
zero out of 14 for that essay. Zero. And uh, I, I'm quite proud of that, that zero, actually. At least it's, I remember it well and fondly. <laughs> now, maybe we can, if we can move on a wee bit to the home educators in Scotland, because these are a fine body of men and women. And I've learned a lot from them. Through the UK column, when I started to broadcast in the UK column, I started to interact with home educators. And I found that they were the most switched on group that I'd ever come across. When it came to evils coming through the state, because they were kind of sharp end, they knew more than anybody else. They were wonderful and also quite spirited in how they expressed themselves. An example of that, there was one couple who were getting a lot of hassle from a local authority who wanted to come in and do inspections in the house and we want to see what you're teaching and really being pushy. So they eventually said, yeah, okay, come on Thursday. So the, these two inspectors from the council came up and when they opened the door, the husband and wife were completely stark naked. And they said, you, you know what nature is, don't you? Yeah, of course you do. Just put your clothes over there next to the, on the stairway and come on through. Never saw them again. Right? They weren't naturists. They were just... <laughs> just that, ladies and gentlemen, their cage. that's but, how you deal with them, right? That's how you deal with the EHE officers. <laughs> that's great advice. Thank you. <laughs> That'll solve so, the problem. <laughs> you know, anyone who's got the spirit to do this, I want to listen to what they were saying. So, firstly, I got this tip from one of the leading lights. I said, look, look at John Elvidge. He's the mother load. Right? Now, that's all I got. Look at John Elvidge. He's the mother load. So I duly looked at John Elvidge. Now, John Elvidge was then the head of the Scottish Civil Service. He was trained in senior in, trained by in senior in dodgy, shall we say, a mysterious secretive political charity called Common Purpose, who trains people to think, to act beyond their authority and to form networks with other Common Purpose graduates across government. So he was in that but he came up with a thing called the Scottish model of government. And I was astonished when I found this out because I was already communicating stuff about Scotland in the UK column. I thought I was quite switched on. And this thing had come in like five years before and I knew nothing about it. What is the Scottish model of government? Smog, the acronym. And the Scottish model of government, which they then were running around trying to sell to the whole world, such a success, is the removal of government departments as functional entities. So it's all one organism. Now, you see what happens there. If you talk to the GP, are you talking to the state? Are you talking to Child Protective Services as well? well? Effectively, you might be. If you talk to the police, are you also talking to the local authority? Well, practice, you very well might be. Try complaining to the police about the conduct of the local authority and see how that goes. By the way, don't try that. It's actually very dangerous. So this concept of a single organism with no boundaries was very fundamental to how things operate in Scotland and still is. And of course, that spawned the infamous, the hated, the despised name person scheme. And again, home educators were at the forefront of fighting that particular evil. And the name person scheme, for those who don't know, was a creepy Orwellian child-watching scheme where, this, where the state would put like a third parent into your family. They would nominate a person 
in the state or apparatus, a school teacher, a nurse, something like this, who would operate in a kind of supervisory role over how you were bringing up your children. And they would then tell that person that if they had any inkling, just a feeling, just a, a, we didn't need any evidence, just a little suggestion that something might not be right, then they should take action. They should gather information on you without your knowledge. They should, you know, get all the various parts of the state together to decide how your family is going to be helped. Because they were advertising this as they had the ability to intervene in family life before there was a problem. But they could tell there was a problem coming and they would intervene to coerce how you're bringing up your kids before there's a problem. So that was what the scheme originally was. It's very difficult to find because there was a lot of lies told about it because what the government then did and said, they said it's about child protection, which was a lie. It was not about child protection. They said it's about child welfare. That's a lie. It's about child well-being. And no, they can't define well-being. So it's about whatever they want it to be about. And at one point, they were then not only telling these people who they're training to be named persons, that they should share information whenever they had a gut feel that they should share information. So anything they found out about you, true or not, it didn't need to be accurate information, would be shared with all organs of the state. So we're telling them that. Simultaneously, and we have it on tape, they were telling government contractors, for example, taxi drivers who were taking kids to school, they were getting briefed that they had to listen to the conversations of the kids in the back of the car. And if they had any gut feels, they had to go and report it to the school. So it was an enormous child surveillance scheme. And this relied on two things. It relied on the acquiescence of the entire state system and almost all of the charitable sector who are the charitable sector that take government money for government policy and are in practice, just an extension of the state. So the vast majority of the charitable sector and the whole of the governmental sector went along with this enthusiastically. The courts let us down by not throwing out, even though it was illegal. And it took groups like the Christian Institute, the homeschooling organizations, and a few notable charities to, who don't take government coin to band together and fight it and eventually get it ruled unlawful although the actual scheme is still floating about in a kind of zombie-like form. So this whole state apparatus of control that was attempted to be rolled out to the whole country came from the Scottish model of government. And the Scottish model of government, the first people to spot that were the home educators. So the home educators are well on top of what's going on. For sure. Do you think that we have already reached the stage where the state considers the children to belong to them rather than their parents? For sure. Yeah. And this was in, implicit in the name person scheme. But there's also been statements by politicians in America and elsewhere that basically say, politicians and administrators, state administrators, that basically say, you know, we decide. The kids are basically ours and the parents are allowed to bring them up kind of as agents of the state as long as you do it the way we tell you. That's yeah. the mindset. Now, this was eventually revealed in the name person scheme because the name person was all about deception. So they rolled it out to the charitable sectors and the government sectors and the professions and they didn't tell the parents. And they did this intentionally. We have the minutes. 
they said we're going to get it well embedded in professional practice before we tell the parents, because then it's too late, and we're not going to tell the parents first because the parents are going to object to us running their children, you know, raising their children for them. So it was inherently secretive. But the problem was they had to inform all of these thousands of people who were going to act as named persons what they're going to do. So they had to tell them what to do. And they had to put out training videos. And they had to put out documentation. And the Notre Dame Person campaign got all of it and just recycled it as their own advertising. And it was glorious because every time the government put out information on name person, the no-to-name person campaign got stronger as a result. It was extremely funny to watch. And the pinnacle of this came when they, there's a thing called the Youth Parliament, which is a nasty state indoctrination scheme for children to make them think they're, that they're being listened to. So they have a Youth Parliament every so often in Scotland. And they presented the name person scheme to the Youth Parliament to get their endorsement to back up why this is a good thing. So how do you explain it to children? And what they said was, your children are like delicate flowers. And every adult in your world, they're like gardeners, and they've all got to look after you, tend for you. But the named person, that's like the head gardener. So that's what they actually, so they had to reduce it down to a simple enough phrase to communicate it to children their actual worldview came through and parents weren't in it. It's creepy. It's nothing other than creepy. It's some of the darkest, most awful stuff. Whenever you read these, what are supposedly boring government documents about education or home education and how they don't really want you to do it, it gives me such sinister feelings. I couldn't believe that I was expecting to read just boring sort of legalese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the rules. That we're okay. But it, the more of it you read, I challenge anybody to come to the conclusion that it's benign. I challenge you because show me where is the stuff that helps parents to home educate? Where is the information that comes from either the Department for Education or from the local authorities? Where is it? Where is it? When I was doing some research, I would go to the Department for Education and they would say, oh, go to the local authority website. So I'd go to the local authority or the county council websites, and they would say, if you want information on home education, go to the DfE. So it's just this cyclical thing. It, one website transfers, you know, recommends you go back to the other. So and what's available, these what I call wafer-thin pamphlets, there's nothing in there that helps parents home educate. It's all about what happens to you if they don't like what you're doing. It's all punitive and how they're going to set social services after you if you're found to not be doing what they want. Now, I must just add to that, there's nothing to worry about, ladies and gentlemen. I have helped dozens and dozens of parents this year remove their children from school successfully and have had zero issues, real issues, with inactive home education officers. They're like the offsled for home ed parents. They're not. They're nothing like that. They're not as scary. They can be dealt with very, very easily. You just become naturists for the afternoon, for example. That will, that, that will get rid of the EHE officer. But no, there are other methods if you're not up for that. So you mustn't feel frightened. But when you step outside, if you let them know that you're doing something that they don't like, the legislation goes against you very, very quickly because they do let a little bit of a bait and switch where they say it suddenly goes from being a county council oversight of home education into, oh, social services because children are being neglected. There's very little that takes place in between those two positions, which is why the 
teaching that I'm doing focuses on how to deal with the elective home education officers so that you don't ever have to go down any of these more difficult avenues when the state start to get shirty with what you're teaching your children at home. I wanted to ask, I love the common purpose section. I've, I've seen evidence of that, even in the way that things are taught now in some classrooms. And the United States are also having a bit of a problem in mathematics with something called common core. And this common core sounds awfully like common purpose to me. They're radically changing the way mathematics is taught to children in schools as though we've failed forever to teach great mathematicians. So there's something fishy going on there, which I certainly need to be looking into. For me, it's very, very difficult to explain to parents the kind of the long march to the institutions, the cultural Marxism that's being taught directly to your children. And they're actually witnessing it every single day. But it's become a little bit easier in recent months and years because of the LGBTQ agenda. Because it's very, very visible in terms of its, you know, full technicolor, it's now, it's been possible for me to show parents, look, look at what is happening. And there was an incident, was there not, that's not unrelated to this, in an Edinburgh school, I think it was last week. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened up there? Because I I get the impression that British people think that this is something that only happens in America. This is an American problem. But I, I very much want yeah. them to hear what's, you know, what's going on yeah. uh, the other side of the pond. It's very certainly not just an American problem. I came across an educator in Aberdeen who was a homosexual man and very much in the promotion of pride, gay culture. He was pushing that heavily. He was a he's the poster boy for gay culture in the town. Now, he was employed by Aberdeen Council to teach their teachers how to teach about homosexuality in schools. So you, you had this campaigner for a very extreme view of homosexual culture and the importance of it, and who is completely prejudiced and biased in his view teaching the teachers how to discuss homosexuality with all the children in Aberdeen. And I asked him on Twitter, he was talking about some lesson that he'd been advocating, and I asked him, you know, would you inform the parents about this before giving this, this particular lesson? And he came back right away and said, no, absolutely not. And any, if any parent objects, I'll teach the child anyway, because this is, we need to know this, and it's not to parents, it's up to me. And then he deleted the tweet because he realized he'd gone a bit far. So you had someone who was an activist, an LGBT activist, put in to teach the teachers of the whole county how to approach all the LGBT issues. So there's only one true way, but it's the LGBT activist's way. And this was a state-funded, full-time salaried post he had. And I found that there was more of these kind of guys in other local authorities around about Scotland as well. So you have people being state-funded to indoctrinate the teachers to, so that the teachers will indoctrinate the children. This is the mechanism. And it's through the charitable sector in part, and it's through the formal political and state apparatus in part. And the issue is that no one was pushing back. They were silenced by the, oh, you're bigoted, right? That's not working so well anymore, right? Because it's so obviously egregious. It's so obviously harmful what's being taught. And people are sussing out where it comes from because they're doing the research. 
right? They're finding out about what Michael Foucault and da-da-da and all these guys actually thought and how they're looking to destroy society to build it again and how they see the family as the core of society and therefore the family has to be destroyed. When they had the name person, oh, there was a wonderful moment in the name person fight. I was driving along Glencoe, so I was in dramatic scenery and with the radio reception's a bit dodgy in Glencoe, so this kept fading out and in. And I was getting bits of this phone-in show because the BBC decided they would do a hit piece on the Notre Dame person campaign because it was being too effective. So they invited them on for a discussion programme. What they did is they'd have the Notre Dame person campaign on first, and then they had three people coming after them to be interviewed in ascending order of heavy-headedness, finishing with a government minister to demolish the no-to-name person case. So they were going to let them state their case, make sure they're out number 321 in the pieces that are being done, have this demolition. And in between the talks, it's a two-hour show, the public was able to forward in. Can you spot the, the, can you spot the error in their plan? So, so the public stuff, they forward <laughs> in, and the public, the public had read the stuff and knew exactly what the in-person was. And people come in and started to read the Communist Manifesto to the BBC, item four, destroy the family, and started to quote from it. It was the most beautiful two hours of radio I ever heard. The BBC were actually pleading for people who thought the name person scheme was good to phone in, because no one was phoning in to support this garbage. So eventually, they couldn't actually get any members of the public, but eventually they got some guy paid for by Fife Council on the Fife Council payroll and part of the scheme to phone in to defend it because it was getting rubbished by everybody. And the host of the show, the BBC host, said, OK, so you say it's not compulsory. That's fine. So you're a named person. You phone me up and say, hello, I'm your child's named person. I can just say, no, thanks, and put the phone down. And the guy goes, no. She goes, no, I can't, I can't. I have to speak to you. But, and that fell apart. So they, even their plant couldn't make the scheme sound reasonable. And it was wonderful. And this was because the people knew what was happening. And this is now applying in other areas. It's applying in the LGBT because people are sussing out what the agenda is. And it's nothing to do with being nice to gay people. It's nothing to do with ending homophobic bullying. This is irrelevant. And even the gay people are finding this out because I'm now seeing articles from homosexual campaigners who are campaigning for gay rights, who are finding themselves being attacked by the LGBT community because they're men. And they look like men, and they're quite clear on what a man is and what a woman is. And that's too normal for them now. There's too many boundaries in there. So they're now being attacked because it's nothing to do with treating people who have same-sex attraction with compassion and politeness and reasonableness. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with breaking down every barrier there is so that there's nothing left that anyone can actually found a life on. It's ultimately very, very hostile to human thriving. And people are sussing this out. And they're able to point to it and they're able to explain it and they're able to deconstruct it. So the charge, oh, you're just a bigot, doesn't work. Because not, not. Here's what we're actually dealing with here. And the same is applying to critical race theory. Critical race theory is meant to be very hand-wringing and, you know, we must be nice to black people because slavery. And all it's actually doing is 
dividing people and making them hate people with different color skin. And people are saying, I don't want to hate people with different color skin. And I don't want people to hate me. And I think this entire thing is there to attack the society. And I can prove it because we've got Derrida and we've got Foucault talking about this stuff and critical theory and what it's for. And that's what they said it was for. It was to destroy. And why you put it into schools? And when that sort of comeback hits, the school official simply turning around and saying to a person who might well be black as well, you're racist, you can't say that. The school official is just going to look like a twit. So people are fighting back, and the fighting back's good. We say in the column all the time, action conquers fear. You know, if you're going to do something, do something. And talk about it after you've done it, so people know you've done it. And it's very good. And for your particular audience, and say probably the strongest thing you can do, the thing that will most put a spoke in the, the wheels of the evil that's trying to install itself as our government, is to home educate your children. I couldn't agree more. Why is it? that people who are so awake and aware of this agenda, you know, the people who are watching the UK column and they're, if you look at the chat box for those people who are members, there's a little chat box that you can get involved in during the live broadcasts. Some of the information in there is extraordinary. There are some clearly highly intelligent, well-informed, academically rigorous people who are just people who watch and consume the UK column's content. But what I can't quite get around at the moment is, why are some of these people then still dropping their most precious thing in the world off at the state indoctrination centres every morning? What is holding these brilliant people back from home educating, do you think? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's complex. Partly it will be economic pressure. Partly it's because we all came up through the state system, or most of us did, and it was less toxic then. As my older brother's case shows, it wasn't non-toxic. It was getting bad, but it wasn't anything like it is now. It's the boiling frog thing. You know, when will you jump out? How hot does the water need to be? It's getting so that more people are jumping. More people are leaving the state system. And that's why we're starting to see a pushback by the state, because they're losing too many people who are no longer willing to see their children indoctrinated in this manner. We've got to the point now, this is something you broke on Monday's UK Column News, I think, if I remember rightly, that an Edinburgh primary pupils abuse younger child in toilet as police investigate. That's from the edinburghlive.co.uk website. I think that was something you talked about on Monday. But for people who might not have heard that, could you just briefly outline what that, that incident was about, please? Yeah, I'll just, I just quote here from Edinburgh Live. Police Scotland confirmed officers investigating a sexual assault reported to them on Friday, May 27th and a report behind the Scottish Children's Reporters Administration. Parents and children at school say they believe that a school pupil who is primary six, so maybe 10, 11, something like that, was held down and sexually assaulted by two other pupils. Two primary seven pupils aged 11 or 12 are suspected of attacking the younger pupil in the school toilet. One family member of a student school said that the alleged perpetrators had been allowed back into the premises under supervision, they said that they feel the school is a disgrace for trying to keep the information from parents, the parents weren't told, and have questioned the ethics of senior staff and allowing one of the children involved to return. One dad said the school cannot treat this with a slap on the wrist, they must protect the other students. The assault, Edinburgh Live continues, the assault was claimed to have taken place in the school toilets just after, shortly after a sex education class was held in primary school. So that alone is cause for concern if that's what the sex education... And that, that has to be answered. Did that trigger the assault? What are they teaching? 
Well, interestingly, the Daily Express, who picks up the story, deleted that final segment that you just spoke there off from the Edinburgh Live. The section work that you just read from edinburghlive.co.uk says two individuals with family connections to children at the city council-run school also complained that the incident had taken place shortly after a sex education class that was held at the primary. Although the article in the Daily Express that reports the same incident is almost identical, it's very, very similar. Some of it is the same copy. That section has been deleted from the larger news outfit. Coincidence? This this is an area where, I mean, there's several areas where the attack is most clear on on family and on society. Race is one, sexuality is one, sex education is one avenue for that. And in Scotland, there's a small political party trying to fight back on this called the Scottish Family Party. Now, their leader, a guy called Richard Lucas, has been campaigning on, an ex-teacher, has been campaigning on, amongst other things, the nature of the Scottish school's sex education programme, which is promoting pornography, it's promoting anal sex, it's promoting all sorts of stuff that's manifestly harmful. So they're asking the question, why are they teaching the children stuff that's going to harm them? So there's a wonderful YouTube video of Richard Lucas turning up at an event where Education Secretary John Swinney was speaking. And so Richard Lucas stands up and starts to quote from the government's own videos that they show the school children. And the woman running the event runs to the front of the stage, waving her arms. You can't say that. You can't say that. We're live streaming. People will hear. And he says, well, if it's so extreme, this information that I can't speak in case your adult audience that you're live streaming to is offended. Why are you saying this to children? Why are you teaching this to our children? Of course, there is no answer. But the fact that there's no answer is a clue, right? Because this is one of the other things, if you're in any sort of struggle with these people, you have to learn that the people administering these evils don't actually know much. They don't know where the information comes from. They don't know what it's generating. They don't know where it's going. They're just following orders. Now, just following orders is not an excuse, but that's all they're doing. And they get the dogma, they get the government mantra, and they will repeat it. And you press the button, and out will come the government mantra. And you might get the attack line. So there's the official mantra, and then there's the nasty attack line that's the counterattack against your position. Right, So although it's not official government mantra to call you a bigot, they will call or imply that you're a bigot if you object to the government line of education. Right? See, so once you get through line one and line two, there's nothing. They know nothing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it. They don't know what you know. And they can't answer any of the questions that you can raise. So once you get past defence line one and defence line two, you can run a mock with these people ask them questions, right? demand answers, give them information and say, I need you to comment on, you know, what are they going to do? And if one or two people do it, it causes havoc. If a great many people do it, it causes absolute meltdown. Once they've gotten through their script, they're basically stuffed, aren't they? Once you've addressed part one of the script, part two of the script, there is nothing after that because there can't be. They've lost the argument. There's no logic here. They're not telling the truth. 
uh, repeating something that they've been told to say. And it takes me right back to the start of this conversation where you said something truly stunning. And I'm probably going to close out with that. I'll, I'll ask you to let people know where they can find you and stuff. But just before I do that, what you said was you were discussing the PhD that you'd employed at your, at your company. So this is one of our top academics, people. Yeah, they have a PhD. It's a doctorate. These are, you know, these are highly educated people, people that we ought to be proud of as a nation. And David said, I saw someone who'd taken three years to think of anything. And it showed him that actually a lot of this education is harmful. What we're seeing at this point, ladies and gentlemen, is that leaving your children in formal education in school is not for their education. At this stage, I don't think it's defensible to say, oh, I want my children to have a good education. That's why I send them to school. That's not the reason. I think it's more to do with economic pressure. It's more to do with people being very stressed and not having much time, people feeling afraid. I think fear is, is one of the big ones. And of course, you guys at the column always say, action conquers fear. So, you know, take action. We must do something. Listen, thank you so very much for your time this morning. I really, really appreciate it. You have a large following as an individual and also collectively, more collectively at the UK column. And thank you for the work that you are doing. You certainly inspired me to do and to be better. And I'm really, really grateful for everything that you've discussed with us this morning. Before I bid you farewell, is there anything that you would like to add that I've missed? And please, of course, tell people where they can find you. Well, thank, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. So thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, UK Column is ukcolumn.org. We are no longer on YouTube. We get thrown off of YouTube for putting out the accurate statement of a woman whose husband had been injured by the COVID-19 vaccine and was left in a partially paralyzed condition. We put her testimony out there. It was entirely accurate, and it was then picked up by an excellent organization called Conservative Women. And when they put it, which is read by the Tory party, when they put a transcript of our interview on their magazine, we suddenly were no longer on YouTube. So I'm still on YouTube, just uh, Northern Exposure is my YouTube channel. And uh, Brian Gerrish, another one of the presenters, he has a YouTube channel as well. But the main place to go is ukcom.org, and there's a vast store of information there, huge video library of all the news programs and specials uh, that we run. We've done several with uh, several recent specials with an organization called Doctors for COVID Ethics, which covers all the COVID vaccine issues in great detail, some extremely highly qualified people. And some of those lectures, I'd have to say, talks are fantastic. So I encourage people to look those out as well. And we are doing our bit to speak as much truth as we can, as clearly as we can, and uh, hopefully help some people along the way. We know we're helping people because all through the COVID crisis, people would write to us and they all said almost exactly the same words. We love what you do. You keep us sane. And in a mad world, being able to listen to ordinary people talking about events in a rational way is quite reassuring. And that's what we do. Absolutely. If you are not regular UK column viewers, ladies and gentlemen, you must get yourselves over there. I highly recommend it. It's the number one place to go for news, in my humble opinion. It's a bunch of gentlemen and some ladies who are very, very well put together. They work extremely hard. They're well read. They're academically rigorous. They are calm, rational and sane. 
and David said it better than I did in, a, in an insane world. What could be better than that? That's the UKcolumn.org. Final one from me. I have something exciting for you. Yes, yes, I've been going on about this for ages. I've finally done it. I have some dates for your diary. So Thursday the 4th, Friday the 5th, and Saturday the 6th of August. You need to reserve these dates. You need to be there. I have been working extremely hard in the background for you. This is for all parents, grandparents, or anyone who's interested in what's going on in education and home education at this time in the UK. You are welcome. If you are listening to us outside of the UK, you're welcome to join, but the time zones might be a bit interesting. But reserve the dates. It's Thursday, the 4th of August, Friday, the 5th of August, Saturday, the 6th of August. I am presenting a series of training workshops called Guerrilla Ed. That's Guerrilla Education, Guerrilla Ed. And part one will be on Thursday, the 4th, part two, Friday, the 5th, and part three, Saturday, the 6th of August. I look forward to taking you to educating and entertaining you and taking you on a magical mystery tour of how we deal with this problem. So if you're a stressed out, hardworking parent that thinks they can't afford to homeschool, that knows that they don't have time to homeschool, do not worry. Come listen to me. Listen to what I have to say before you make those decisions, firm ones. Come and have a listen and let me show you how we can do things. I reckon I can get your children an academically rigorous education in under two hours of effort per day, five days a week. Enough of me. Thank you so much again, David, for joining us. And I uh, very much look forward to hopefully working again with you in the future. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Sarah. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 